Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Nowhere Podcast. Technology is constantly running in the background of our lives, yet for most of us, it's invisible. On Nowhere, we explore the intended and unintended influences that geospatial technology has on the real world. These are the stories of how geospatial tech unexpectedly affects our lives. I'm Jonathan Neufeld, CEO of TechTerra and host of Nowhere. Today, my guest is Jason Wynn, founder and director at Narrative Infrastructure. Jason is also an architect and urban planner with a focus on long-term design. Hi, Jason. Thanks for being here. Hi, John. Thank you for bringing me on board. Yeah, really glad to have you. So we're going to talk about narrative infrastructure and its role in the built environment. But let's start off and tell me what narrative infrastructure means. Narrative infrastructure is a basic structure that underlies the rest of the infrastructures that we all live around. Narrative infrastructure is a definition for the elements that make up the inspirations behind what you see, because nothing actually gets done or built in this world unless there's some kind of a story. If someone convinces someone to do something of something else, and that was them telling a story to someone. So the narrative infrastructure winds up being a map of the ideas and the stories that led to the things you see. Interesting. So your whole concept here is to look at the stories we tell each other, the stories that make up our lives, and then reflect that in a spatial sense. Somehow put those stories onto the map. Exactly. All stories include a setting. So it's actually pretty uh, obvious if we want to, to look at them in a spatial frame. It's funny you mentioned that. I mean, we all learn about stories in grade school. And of course, setting is one of the first things we think of. But when I look at the world around me, I don't think of it as a setting for stories. And so it's an interesting way of looking at it and being able to place those stories on a map. Right. And the information has always been there for us to use. So it really seemed like a no-brainer when I first came up with the notion of, you know, could we not just bring this into a GIS environment? Exactly. I think the other great thing about being able to record stories in a spatial sense is the ability to overlay multiple stories with multiple tellers. So in your experience, what does it gain us when we can overlay stories from multiple tellers that happen in the same location? The biggest challenge that we always deal with when we talk about doing things like development and whatnot is someone comes forward with a single story, one big idea, and they try and convince other people to do it. And it's then through the public engagement process that we start to hear the conflicting stories, you know, how this may not you know, work together. And the reality is, is that all the environments that we all live in are a mixing of each other's stories, mixing of each other's life paths, really. By being able to demonstrate that graphically to show how stories might be interfering with one another will actually then tell us what the meta story or the combined story should be for that location if we're respecting the fact that we live in a plurality of a society, that it isn't just one person living off in the woods, we live together in cities. Absolutely. We live together in cities and we live together in a plurality of stories. And it's good to recognize that those stories, you know, may conflict or may reinforce each other, but also that those stories are hyper local, right? The story of my neighborhood isn't just necessarily the story of your neighborhood. That becomes the big thing that we you know, have an opportunity to readdress now with using new technologies like this is that we don't have to be so reliant on uh, big statistical models to generalize this information. We can actually get local. We can get very drilled down to the individual neighborhoods and figure out what the local stories are and use those to inform what we want to do in the future. Have you ever encountered a time when there were no stories on the map where you found like a blank space in terms of stories and narrative? It becomes the question that, you know, the bar that you're asking, because 
you know, there's always going to be, there's no part of the world that is not impacted by humans in some minor way or another. And therefore, since everything is a story, that means there is a story there. That can be dialed down when we start asking ourselves, what is the frame that we're taking? Are we taking a redevelopment frame? Then we're going to probably put a boundary on the number of stories, the type of stories are going to involve. If we're far out in Antarctica, we're going to be talking probably pretty much about some historical stories relating to treaties and pollution. Right. These will be the you know, stories that can still then be impactful there. They're not local stories. They're not individual stories. These are going to be larger, you know, global scale type stories. They're going to have a larger catchment. But therefore, you ask your question, what is our catchment? Ooh, that's a great question. So what, what is the catchment? If you think about a story, you know, and, and catchment is usually a term we use around watersheds and, and where the water flows to. How does that relate to narrative infrastructure and how does that relate to, say, an urban environment? So if you have a story and you have a setting in a story, let's any given story happens to be maybe centered around a fireplace and a home. So what is the actual extent of that story? What does that mean to the community? The issue that becomes the reverse of that is who is the actual rememberer of that story? Who's the storyteller? And what is their potential to impact the stories around them? So from that perspective, we have to ask, okay, when are they going to be thinking of that story? And so then we start to actually reverse engineering how we remember spaces and remember stories for a particular space. When someone actually is going to remember something, it's probably because they're being given some kind of a cue, something that's going to cause the memory to arise, the memory of that story. Those cues can be someone telling a related story. It can be a visual reference, and it could be you know maybe a photograph. But if you're talking about an urban context, you're going to be at the bare minimum the physical location that they were around when they originally experienced that story is the undeniable, unindelible range of what that story is going to have for that storyteller. For the sake of a foundation to work from. We looked at uh, the neuroscience behind memory and found from some researchers in England that there is about a five-minute window when a person has a memory and then when it is geolocated in their own mind, which is counterintuitive, but you don't locate where a story is within your memory. You don't build it into your memory palace of your mind until you've actually tagged it around with a couple of other waypoints in the immediate environment. And that takes about five minutes, give or take. After that, when you ask someone if they can remember where something took place, after five minutes, they'll be very precise about where they meant after they've had time to encode the waypoints around it. So that gives us about a five-minute window. From an urban design perspective, that talks about... Oh, hang on, hang on. So yeah. So in terms of that five-minute window, then, if I'm experiencing a story, if I'm participating in an event... You're saying it takes me about five minutes to encode that memory into the location, into the specific geographic location in my own memory. Is that right? Or are you talking about more when we go to remember the story? When we go to remember the story. Everything is about how it's actually remembered, because that, that, that's the foundation of a story is it's a remembrance, a raconteur. So when I remember that story, I end up kind of walking down the same path that I took to get to the location of the story, right? First I go out my door, then I turn right, and then I end up at the location. And I, in my memory, then I have to follow all of those steps yeah. in that spatial order to get to the actual, you know, setting of the event. 
So it's really fascinating to study memory palaces and understand that we encode our memories spatially. It's a fundamental to how memory works is that we re-record stuff in space. This is why when we study things like mathematics and physics and whatnot, it's really hard to embed it in the brain, right? But if you give it a word problem, which was always the foundation of my physics teacher back in high school, was by making it a word problem, it sticks. Because when it's spatial, memory sticks much stronger than when it doesn't have any kind of a spatial anchor. So yeah, you have to actually anchor it in space for it to actually be meaningful or impactful. So before I interrupted you there, you were starting to say something about urban planning as related to story catchment areas and memory function. So sorry, where were you headed there? The questions for trying to figure out that catchment question about what kind of an extent can we expect to assign to a story. There's not a hard and fast way that we can calibrate that. But for the sake of a someone who has the most stories, so the elders of our community, and for the sake of being able to provide an effective number that's a common you know, denominator then amongst all you know, people of the most advanced age. We would take the average walking speed of an elderly person and ask how far could they get comfortably at a walking speed mm-hmm. through their environment as if they were going to be, after they experienced a story down at the corner store told to them by someone, five minutes later, they should be remembering it and remember precisely where they were told that story. So how far would they get? In five minutes, walking speed for an elderly person in an urban context, given moderate traffic, it's about 220 meters. So that gives us okay. a, a literal number that we can then assign to create an area of effect for a story. And so effectively, whenever that person then you know triggers that fence, comes within that 220 meters of the location, they might remember the story and then begin to launch into it. And, and that story is tied to that location. Exactly. And so, you know, we could say the exact converse, which was if you were to lose the urban fabric within that space, they wouldn't have the visual cues. There's no chance of them having the visual cues that would cause them to remember that story. Right. I've got questions later on about, um, you know, disaster recovery and that sort of thing. But for now, before you move to Cyprus, I know that you took all the courses and you passed all the exams to become an officially licensed and stamped land designer and planner. How did that change your perspective on the process of narrative infrastructure and on the process of things like urban design? It actually kind of went the other way around. I actually started studying planning and realized that there was a fundamental misapprehension in a lot of what planning does and even what architecture does, which is there is no genuine long-term perspective that we use the word sustainability and we don't know what we mean when we say it. And that became the real kicker for me was that I was asked to do a very long-term project, a thousand-year project, and I couldn't get my client past the 350-year mark. It's beyond the scope of our science. It's beyond the state of the art. A thousand years is an incredibly long time. How would you even begin to plan for a time period like that? Uh, We have 35 layers of analysis that we were in, in following and running down. It was all I did for 14 months was trying to get 800 acres to last a thousand years with the same use type on the property. And uh, there are so many different things that go wrong so fast. Right. A thousand years is a very long, only, you know, extremely special monuments tend to last that long. So anyway, sorry, uh, carry on. Right. So when I found that it was, you know, literally, um, you know, beyond the scope of the state of our art, and uh, there's no amount of Googling I could do to, you know, push that envelope any further. And I couldn't, tell the client how they were going to get to the thousand year mark with the exact same building model in the exact same mission long after we're all gone. 
and our great-grandchildren are running the show. After uh, I resigned from that, it, the question gnawed at me for a good couple of years. And I realized that, you know what, I, I can't let this go. It galls me that I spent 14 months of my life and I could not solve this one. So I decided that I needed to go back to education in order to you know, start asking these questions. What is long-term? What is genuinely a sustainable human society? And how can we even get there? What is the one thing that we can rely on or that we can start to work with? And I started with the assumption that it was storytelling and realized that that would be the path to explore. And I didn't know how I was going to get there. And I had to go through the, the gauntlet of education again. I mean, I re-entered graduate school as a 40-year-old in order to you know try and figure something out new, which was actually the right way to do it because I, I didn't have any overt agenda for um, my person. You know, everything was actually, I just wanted to solve a really intractable problem, which was what actually is long-term design? How is it even feasible? Right. You mentioned uh, a thousand-year site plan and, and this sorts of long-term planning. And, and we know that this sort of oral tradition is really old, right? This passing down of stories from person to person, place by place. We know the First Nations people here in Canada and around the world have, have passed down these stories and knowledge for thousands of years you know, jumping off the thousand-year site plan, you have a, a really interesting story out of Australia about uh, the Australian Aboriginal people and, and some of their story mapping. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, it, it was something that um, I, I'd heard about actually clear back in high school with a book called Songlines and uh, a movie called Walkabout. And it details how the Aboriginal community of um, Australia, who have had truly one of the most ancient civilizations on the planet, we used to be able to navigate, or still do, navigate across Australia by singing a song. That's why they were called song lines. And the song was essentially a long-form epic story. And the characters in the story were the landforms that were in the story. So that as they were walking through the landscape, singing the song, the physical features of the land would tell them if they were following the correct path. Even if they had personally never walked it before, mm -hmm. the landscape itself would tell them which way to go. Some researchers from Australia, from an Australian university, were doing some ethnography and following one of these song lines. And uh, this was back in 2014. And they were very surprised when they were following the song line and found that they were suddenly standing at the edge of the ocean. And they could only figure that they'd missed a landform or you know, they took a left turn in Perth when they should have taken a right. And this confounded them for a while until another researcher at the university said, well, what's out beyond the seashore? And using, you know, modern mapping tools, they were very easily able to graphically lower the sea and see that the rest of the story was there. It was simply underwater. And so they turned back to the other researcher and said, when was the last time they could have possibly have, you know, walked this storyline? And I said, well, the last time the sea level was that low was the Pleistocene Ice Age. That was, you know, 13,000 years ago. And this is a story then that they've been following that was never written down. It was told from one person to another for 450 generations from literally the Stone Age, predating the first garden, the first agricultural revolution, this continuously in use map in the form of a story. And this only could have been demonstrated by the fact that it actually ended in the sea. And this is ones of, you know, thousands of stories in Australia 
So this is a technology that has crossed that thousand-year barrier. It's a human relevant piece of infrastructure that just happens to be encoded in the story. Phenomenal. I mean, the lifespan of that story and the ability to uh, understand the landscape is just phenomenal. Now, I know that you're currently in Cyprus and you're doing some work there with this narrative infrastructure and urban planning. I know you have another great story about an empty lot kind of down the street from you there in Cyprus that you're doing some work around. Tell me about the empty lot and what you discovered. When we are comparing the different stories that we mapped here in Cyprus, here in Famagusta, there was a very keen notion to say, this is, doesn't have to always be backwards looking. Normally, when you talk about recounting a story, we're thinking about things that happened in the past. But when we're looking at planning, we're looking at development, we need to be able to ask, what is the next relevant story to go with in the future? Are we going to borrow a corporate story that was successful in Seattle? Or are we going to take something that is more, you know, got more juice to it, more local relevance? And with that idea bouncing around in the back of the mind, this story was told by one of the participants who was part of the original study about how they used to, as children, play marbles at this empty lot. And the lot is still there, in fact, still empty. And this particular community has a cultural divide between the Greek Cypriots and the Turk Cypriots. And back in this era, the communities were much more integrated and they didn't have a genuine conflict and the UN defended, you know, no man's land. They were an integrated community, but not culturally. And so these Greek uh, children would stand on the edge of the lot and watch the Turk Cypriot children play marbles. But the Greek Cypriot children were told by their parents that they were not allowed to play with the Turk Cypriots. So taking this as the most fundamental kind of you know, beginning point of a story was to show that we had a, this particular, this very precise location, this one empty lot. We had a story that was truly, you know, kind of tragic. And in mm-hmm. that tragedy, it really kind of summed up the, the nature of the overall tragedy of people trying to live together, two different cultures. One of the express needs here in the walled city is cafe space. We really can't get enough of it. It's fundamental to the local culture is to actually spend time in cafes and it happens you know, every single morning for many of the older people in the community. So, The notion was, why don't we take this story of a tragic story of children not being allowed to play together and twist this into something new? So using that as a starting point, we said, well, what if we were to propose a new cafe space and we already have a theme for it? We have the name, Losing Our Marbles Together. The taking this tragic story of children not being uh, allowed to play together, realizing that it's crazy not to allow children to play together. And use that as the foundation for, you know, the going into the future for a new development and to acknowledge the past, to build from the past and to say, now let's choose as a community to stop being segregated, to stop being discriminatory and to acknowledge that children should be playing together. I really like that story because I think it highlights the uh, ability of narrative infrastructure to overlay the two stories on the map find that area of common ground and then use that as a place to build the community closer together. I really love that structure and I wish they'd been able to build that cafe. (laughs) The key point here is that, and this is where I sound kind of like, I don't know, some kind of mad monk, is that it's literally using the methodology of narratology to 
take the narratives and recompose them by turning tragedy into comedy. Instead of there being a win-lose situation, instead subvert the community expectations, subvert the macro narrative and overcome the powers that be. That's the distinction between a comedy and a tragedy. And we happen to, Famagusta, for those who don't know, this is the setting of Shakespeare's Othello. We literally have the Othello castle at the end of my street. And I've been having a wonderful notion, and I I know I'd probably be forbidden from re-entering the United Kingdom if I actually pulled it off, would be to recast Othello as a comedy, to twist the narrative and recast the terrible, and it's it's iconic, iconic race relations, uh, gender relations, political issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one of Shakespeare's great tragedies that brings up all of the hot points that we cannot put down even to this day. It's using narratology as a field of study unto itself to take stories and use them. And that's why it's the mad monk notion is that we're not willing to go down and abandon the narrative structure. It's actually useful at all levels because honestly, everything we do is narrative based. And if you're honest about that and you're consistent about it, it gives you a tremendous amount of power. It gives you a lot that you can do. It re-energizes agency because everyone knows how to tell a story. Yeah, I mean, we are a storytelling species, right? It's one of the ways in which our species differentiates itself from others. And as your story with the Australians led to, you know, it's been around forever and ever, and it's an effective way of communicating across time and space. You mentioned earlier that sort of narrative catchment and, and having these visual cues within a certain range. What happens when those visual cues are gone, when there's a disaster or a conflict and you need to recover? So what happens when those visual cues have been erased? Well, if you have the narrative infrastructure in place or you have something that will substitute, you know, something that will be a uh, analog of that, uh, the literal physical thing, then you can start remembering the stories and then thereby using the same narrative techniques, the same narratologies to build back with references to the past so that the memories are re-encoded into the physical fabric. That's the method you would use if you have a narrative infrastructure or you have those analog you know, reminder things that can help people pull those memories forward. Of course, fundamental to that is that, you know, if it's only an, a mimetic, like a photograph or something like that, there has to be someone still living who remembers what that looks like. If they told their story and it was recorded, then yeah. it has a lot longer shelf life. In fact, the shelf life is as long as we can keep the archive intact. Right. So you can use those stories then from the before time, before the incident happened or the disaster happened, to rebuild the neighborhood kind of on the basis of the original stories that were there. But I'm guessing you wouldn't want to rebuild it, you know, story for story, brick for brick, right? You wouldn't want to rebuild it for the past. In some ways, you very much run up against a point of dissonance where cognitive dissonance will set in and it will feel like more of a theme park. That's not effective. That it doesn't really quite get to where you need to be. And they tried something like this at the World's Fair in, I think it was 1925 in Barcelona. And uh, they recreated, I think, like 15 different Spanish villages in uh, the urban pavilion. Uh, this neighborhood okay. still exists. They took photos and then recreated brick, like you said, brick for brick. And mm-hmm. it's a fascinating study, but it's also perfectly meaningless because the stories are not there. 
Um, sure, it's Disneyland now. It's a it's a replica of a of location. It's, it's not a, a story location. Exactly. It's completely. <laughs> it, 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 it's really a fascinating idea and well worth you know looking at as a study because it tells us that without the themes, without the actual themes that drove those decisions, those tiny little micro you know maneuvers, you know you can't build from just a fabric, a pattern book. It, that, that's perfectly meaningless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the important point is to look at it the, doesn't work that way. Right. The important thing is to look for the narrative uh, uh, themes to those stories and then to be able to make reference to them. You're going to build for the future. You're going to bring in what is needed now. What's going to be needed for the immediate future. And the, truly, this same perspective is exactly how it's going to happen with or without you know, urban renewal. If the community is simply evolving in place, it's going to happen the exact same way, is that a new need is going to arise. And they're going to say, okay, how do I adapt what I already have in order to achieve that new need? That is an evolved environment. That's an evolved community, as opposed to from scratch, built with corporate modeling. That is the same methodology you would use if you were looking at a reconstruction question, is that you would actually want to say, okay, what were the themes of this immediate neighborhood? I actually developed a, a set of six codes based off of the writings of uh, Hannah Arendt, a political thinker of the last century, that uh, were incredibly helpful as her definitions of the human condition that allowed me to be able to start taking those themes of, you know, whether it's labor or identity, domain, our works, uh, themes and action. These are really, well, the all communities have this as a foundational idea. It's funny you mention um, the idea of an evolved city versus, you know, a planned city. And uh, I live in a suburb of Calgary, which very much has a planned feel to it. You know, the houses are similar. The roads are similar. It was built within a, you know, a 10-year kind of time frame. But tell me about an evolved city and what an evolved area looks like and how that relates back to this narrative infrastructure, the idea of stories in place. I honestly don't know if this study could have happened in the new world, truly, just because I grew up in North America, both in you know United States and Canada, and mm-hmm. Halifax, where I was an adolescent, there was an experience I had there where there was um, about about three hundred years of history, and you could start to see the weird little angles and corners to a city that identified as a city that was originally designed around a hydrologic model, which means that. Mm-hmm. They just had to stay out of the way of the waterway, and therefore that means they had curvilinear roads. Right? That was a pre-planning era community before we actually had urban planners as a profession, which was about, I guess, 1895. Everything was a little bit ad hoc, and that is they made decisions on a incremental basis. Right. Now that I'm in this spot, what decision do I want to make and how do I need to design there? How do I need to build this particular area to survive against these particular situations? And trial and error so that you'll actually put something in you know, the wrong spot and then it washes away next year or you know, a 500-year flood comes along and away it goes and you know not to build there anymore. Right? And you can look at this. You can look at the type of morphology of a community and you will see these fixation lines that are hiding in our cadastral forms. You'll see, you know, you have to know what you're looking for, mm-hmm. but you'll see that there is these older structures that still dictate, you know, how we make decisions that uh, defy grid. And then you'll see grids suddenly pop up beyond them. And those are as yet a little less tested. They may be less than 80 years old. Right. And uh, haven't really been through the fires and tribulations of how the natural environment is going to treat them. They'll find out later that, you know, 
30% of our subdivision is in fact going to be inundated, you know, every 500 years or maybe more. And, you know, we will wind up, whether we like it or not, having to adapt. It's just right now, our growth has been unprecedented since the industrial era. Right. And so then in terms of an evolved city versus a planned city, you're saying an evolved city is one where you know, those decisions get made on a hyper-local basis, kind of in concert with the narrative infrastructure, right? As I progress the city, I make decisions about that specific location, but on a much smaller scale, rather than making community-wide decisions. We're going to plug an entire community here. Right. And curiously enough, the groundwork for this idea is it's possible to do this on a progressive basis and not just retrogressive. Christopher Alexander proposed the idea in his book on urban de- um, a new theory of urban design. And he took a series of, uh, or a uh, group of graduate students in San Francisco and had them design one building in one space at a time, the same way a city would grow over time. And so throughout the semester, a student would propose a building, but they would leave one facade blank. And there was then the, the activity of the next student to then build off of that and propose Instead of doing like your usual design shreds, they would propose to the professors like they were building officials. This is what I want to build here. And then their studio project evolved in space over time, as opposed to being influenced by a single right. generative element at the beginning, which is pretty typical. And to so start with uh, you know, one gesture or one major idea. And it says that no, no major ideas. We're going to evolve off each other the same way a city would naturally evolve. What was the outcome of that experience? How how is that different than, say, a fully planned city? The scale is considerably more human. The results were a complete surprise because they didn't have an agenda except to make human-centered space. And so the uses that were proposed by the individual students were consistently different than any long-term agenda was going to be for and the result was a designed from scratch structure, a studio project mm-hmm. that was unpredictable, interesting, had progressions in space, and it clearly it had literally different narratives because the individual students had their own narrative for the building they wanted to bring to the project. And so the spaces that in between the buildings evolved as well as a result. It's interesting. And I, I love to think about that notion of the city evolving over time, which of course is very natural and such a great way to demonstrate that concept. Now, what advice would you give for people who want to map the stories of their own community? How can regular people get involved in this? You know, the most important thing is that people take the time to go ahead and tell their own story and get it onto the internet. It really doesn't matter how, as long as we get it up and get it recorded, then it actually has the potential to be incorporated and mapped. So really one of the most useful tools out there is still Google Earth, which allows you to record both voice mm-hmm. and a fly-through on a map. So at real time, you can tell the story and scroll around the map and drop pins, and then you save that out, and you get both of the voice and the map. Honestly, that is the fundamental building block for uh, a narrative infrastructure. It can be taken to other levels if a, if a community wants to contract out and actually get an ethnographer to go ahead and do the interviews and make the maps. That is a, it's a low cost process. It's a great way to answer developers if they're coming to town with you know, their own ideas, to put it gently. And you want to answer you know, from your heart. You want to answer from the ethos of the community. Yeah, 
map your stories. And then you have something that is a common map, something that you can offer up at the development board or the board of adjustments. And you can show them, listen, our stories do not reflect this at all. That doesn't mean that we're telling them to go away. This is what I would suggest. We would suggest that they talk with us about our stories and make their development about our stories. Development has to happen. Change has to happen. It's the nature of, you know, if you're going to have children, you got to give them the opportunity to have an impact. And future development rooted in previous stories would likely have much less pushback from the NIMBY crowd, right? People who are protecting their own backyard, I don't know, but potentially are maybe looking for stories that more align with the existing stories of the neighborhood. Again, to be polite about it. Yeah, it's actually a really savvy developer. And goodness knows I've done this as an architect working with clients is uh, foundationally, if you want to convince someone of an idea, make it sound like it's their idea. Now, I know you have a a really good story about a bag of gold hidden in the wall. So let's wrap up with that. Why don't you tell me the story about the bag of gold? Well, um, one of the storytellers of our study here in Famagusta was uh, talking about his experience. We we live in a walled city. We're about a thousand people living inside of a uh, fortified city, originally built by the Venetians and improved by the Ottomans. The storyteller was talking about a... um, experience he had after he had fallen off the wall one day and when he was chasing a lizard along the wall as a child a lizard vanished into a crack in the ancient venetian wall and as he was probing around trying to catch the lizard out came a small bag of gold that was apparently hidden there by original greek inhabitants who had fled during the ottoman invasion in i guess what was what 1595 and they had hoped they would be able to come back and collect that gold. That's one way to interpret that. The other way to interpret that story is someone stole a bag of gold and decided to hide it there and would come back for it later and forgot which brick they hid it behind. And so what does that story mean for you? I mean, you weren't around for that story. You know, you, you didn't experience that story. But how does that knowing the story that in that location make a difference for you? One of the biggest industries here in Famagusta is still tourism. And... When we want to tell the story of Famagusta, we usually default to Venetians and trading and Othello and Shakespeare. But when a visitor comes and you can tell them something on a very micro level about a child discovering a literal bag of gold. Right. The story for the community becomes vibrant for the visitor. This wasn't someone from 200 years ago. This is someone who's probably still here. We can probably track them down in an afternoon. Mm -hmm. This is a living society now. This is a living place. So as a visitor, all of a sudden you have a much richer experience. Yeah, you kind of end up with like a a sense of meaning for these stories that you didn't actually experience yourself. And most importantly, because it's in a place. It's not notional. It's not a fairy tale. It, It happened at an actual location. There is such a tremendous amount of power saying it happened right over there. Mm hmm. That phrase by itself, it happened right over there, suddenly says your body is in relation to this story. It matters to you. Amazing. I would love to see an open street map variant for, uh, you know, open story map or something where there's a platform everyone can put their stories on and and we can see that overlapping ethnography. Do you know if there's anything like that in the works? I've actually been talking to OSM a little bit about this over the last five years in order to try and look about uh, developing some families that would be appropriate. One of the biggest challenges for doing a solid public narrative infrastructure, 
is that it needs to have the ethical backbone to it that the stories cannot be tampered with. Mm. And so having it be on a wiki environment is uh, counterintuitive. You can't use that kind of an environment because it can't be edited. The stories themselves need to be true to the original teller. So there's some technical challenges with that. There's also the GDPR requirements that allows or compels any person that holds a piece of intellectual property of another person that they have to be able to delete it on request. Mm. So there are some technical struggles that we're looking at in order to create that public narrative infrastructure like you're talking about that is respectful of the intellectual property rights. And it doesn't work if it can be tampered with. The only reason that it has any validity is if it is the ethical voice of the individual. So we also need the encryption on on the back end of it. And for that sense, we're looking at uh, developing a blockchain model. And I'm much, I'd be great to hear from any individual who has some ideas about how we can start to establish a uh, open public ledger that allows us to encrypt this data. So, or not necessarily, it doesn't have to be encrypted, but it does need to be reflected in multiple non-trusting sites so that uh, we can validate its validity. Yeah, and protect it at all times so that one individual can't change the story of another. That's the whole thing about spin. It has no utility if it can't be spin-free. It has to be ethically of the individuals who actually had that experience there. Well, thank you, Jason. I've really enjoyed exploring this whole concept of narrative infrastructure and understanding you know, the settings of our world and how it all ties back into story. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. This is the Nowhere Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Neufeld. You can find Nowhere at NowherePodcast.com, on Twitter at Nowhere underscore pod, and you can find me at John underscore Neufeld. See you later.